The senator was the oldest bald cypress tree in the world. It made its home in what is now Florida, although when it first began to grow, Florida hadn't been invented yet. No European treasure-seeking expeditions had made their way to these shores. Jesus hadn't been born, nor had Moses. In 1993, this tree was estimated to be 3,500 years old. On January 16, 2012, the senator went up in flames. It took a while for the full story of how it caught fire to emerge, but eventually we learned that a 26-year-old meth user had lit a small fire inside the tree so that she could see to get high. And it had been a dry year. In a very short span of time, a tree that's time on our planet predated Moses lit up the night sky like, in the words of one fire responder, like a Roman candle. Would this have happened, I wonder, if collectively, as humans, we worked to maintain a greater connection to the world of wonder we find around us, if we figured out how to reconnect the well-being of our spirits to the well-being of the planet? Things don't stay the same, no matter how much we wish they might, but some things merit our intentional preservation especially those things that are intimately connected to our meaning-making impulses, to our spiritual selves. I sing that song, The Lost Word Blessing, as a lullaby to my daughter because I do hope that she will learn to enter the world with care, with completeness, with knowledge of what surrounds her, to notice, and to look to the world with care that her own soul might grow through that noticing. We have entered a time in human history when many of us have forgotten that things only have value if we take the steps to imbue them with meaning. And so it is up to us to produce value through seeing our natural world, our natural world as sacred. It is up to us to learn and teach and share that intimate, grounded connection to our world, that it grants us a deep orientation in our lives, our physical lives, our spiritual lives, our community lives, our activist lives. This deep grounding is necessary for two basic reasons. First, we know that it's nearly impossible to motivate enough people to make the changes called for to address climate crisis, climate weirding, if those people have never felt anything but lost in the natural world, if they haven't been able to connect to their specific location enough to notice what's changing, what bugs aren't here, what new ones are, what birds have diminished in number, what trees are flowering too soon or too late to set fruit. But second, I believe that we're collectively encountering a spiritual crisis that stems from that lack of connection. The increase in anxiety and depression among our young people is at an all-time high. People, even before the distancing demanded by the pandemic, spoke of a loneliness and a loss of community that left them feeling disconnected, left them at a loss for how to do the deep spiritual work of meaning-making in their lives. The writer and farmer and activist Wendell Berry has suggested that a part of this distancing is actually created by the language we've become accustomed to using about our natural world. 
He writes that the language we use to speak of the world and its creatures, including ourselves, has gained a certain analytical power, but has lost much of its power to designate what is being analyzed or to convey any respect or care or affection or devotion toward it. As a result, we have a lot of genuinely concerned people calling upon us to save a world, he says, which their language simultaneously reduces to an assemblage of perfectly featureless and dispirited ecosystems, organisms, environments, mechanisms, and the like. It is impossible, in his words, to prefigure the salvation of the world in the same language by which the world has been dismembered and defaced. Put another way, in attempting to classify and understand our world, have we lost the important emotional skill of reverence toward it? Do you hear his plea that we might reclaim religious language to talk about our world, this world? I fear that Unitarian Universalists and other religious liberals have been a part of that secularizing, analyzing impulse. I was raised in your church, and I can share that for far too many years, I itched at language that pointed too directly at supernatural religious experience, words like prayer, spirit, miracle, reverence, sacred, holy, the word God, that was a big one. When you enter seminary as a confirmed church-going atheist, and the literature you will be asked to read takes God for granted, there's bound to be some stumbling. The idea of God I had been bequeathed by my own religious upbringing always had a tinge of scorn attached to it. When my friends spoke of God, I thought I knew what they were saying. They were saying, sky god, white beard, the one reaching his, always his hand across Italian monastic ceilings. Creator God, the world can be aged by the begats in the Bible, God. I developed a mental trick early in my seminary days, and it stuck surprisingly well. I don't think I'd even call it a trick anymore. I might go so far as to call it God. Whenever anything I read or read use the word God, I'd pull this mental picture into my mind. It's late summer in northern New Mexico. I'm driving north from Santa Fe toward Los Alamos and the Arroyos, and the bluffs and the mesas are layering themselves into the distance all the way to the Jemez Mountains. It's just rained, a longed-for summer monsoon that cools the air and generates that mineral scent of rain in a desert space, not the vegetal space that accompanies rain that's falling on me where I now live. This flash of an image brings with it textures and colors and smells and sounds, maybe even a taste. Do you ever feel like you can taste the scent of rain? It's all senses engaged. The beauty of the natural world and its processes and cycles from the geologic to the meteorological. Maybe there's even a rainbow the physics of light refracting, all arrayed before me. God. A reclamation of another lost word. You might ask why I even need to engage in this imagining, because, frankly, we're religious beings, and 
we're religious beings because unlike other creatures with whom we share our planet, we know that we're going to die. We are going to die, and the world as we know it is going to change beyond our recognition. It is inevitable, we know. Dippers and bears and grand old oaks and senator trees and pinyon landscapes. We are religious beings because we know we will die. We may have given up supernatural explanations in recent years, but we need the spirit. It's a necessary evolutionary component of a healthy, whole life. We may no longer live with fear of damnation, but we still live with fear of dying, or if not fear, at least a sense of loss, if we have loved this chance to be alive. These musings are evidence of the role of religion in human life. Our human contradictions demand that we grapple with moral, ethical, emotional, and spiritual questions. The fact of our finitude demands it. If we could ponder our eventual death with complete dispassion, if if we could avoid falling in love with our world, our fellow creatures, with words and vistas and animals and natural processes and sap running and leaves changing and aeolian harps, then we would never have to grapple with grief. But we can't. Nature includes death and loss, and nature sanitized into nothing but the sublime. The mountain vistas and the oceans and sunrises robs it of the power to bring us to religious experience. And these elements, the death and loss and the meaning we make of them, these are the sources of our zeal and our need for religion. They are the origin of our creation stories. There was nothing, and then there was something, whether vomited up by a dyspeptic god to alleviate his stomach ache, or created out of a swirly drop of milk, or laid as eggs by a turtle swimming in primordial nothing. The nothingness, the chaos, disorder, mystery, formless expanse that is brought to order by something. Turtles, eggs, heroes, gods, and the earth become solid, and animals and humans emerge. This order is necessary. It gives rules that govern our world, whether laws of thermodynamics or elliptical orbits, gravity, a tilting planet that generates predictable seasons, however we use language and story to explain the order into being. We are religious beings, yet what I often see among those who claim religious liberalism is that we lose out on a powerful impact common among those who experience conversion toward a more traditional world religion way of meaning making. These types of conversion often result in a shift in how the world is seen and an accompanying shift in how one lives one's life as a consequence. The Greek word that describes this experience is metanoia. Someone finds or is found by Jesus and suddenly understands a great love that was lost to them before. An evangelical zeal can result, I once was lost and now I'm found, and now I would like to share with you a way that you too can feel this easing, this letting go, this relaxation into the arms of a supernatural love. Conversions throughout religious history have often occurred in the wilderness, in the uncertainty when we are challenged by something that feels too big for us, that tests us, body, mind, and spirit. We may fight it, and then we make the decision to lean into the challenge, to wrestle with the angel, to spend the 40 days in the desert, to sit under the tree, 
This work in the wilderness is a time of both allowing yourself to be drawn to and resisting the holy. And it's not easy. It can't be if it's to change us. One impact of conversion is the development of an interest in staying in relationship with the divine, with fellow believers, with our deepest selves. What I want for us as religious beings is that metanoia, that life-altering experience that points us towards spiritual growth, not simply spiritual identification. I am a Unitarian Universalist. To experience conversion events so that we may bequeath even half the words recently expunged from the dictionary, not just the words, but the animals and plants and concepts they point to as well, to our children. That we may stay in relationship with fellow believers, with our deepest selves, and with the world around us with whom we share this planet. Might it be found in a grasping? some way, somehow, what feels inexplicable and incomprehensible to our human brains, in finding and cultivating awe in the vastness of our cosmic experience, in letting ourselves connect this awe to more traditional religious language without apology, without caveat, without shame, without cynicism? Can we allow ourselves to be converted? And so I am left wondering, What might that conversion experience toward deep grounding in our places and natural spaces look like? What could happen if we allowed ourselves to find the fullness, the awe and wonder and the chaos and confusion and the mystery and the grief within the worlds in which we make our homes as natural creatures? That we may, through the mutual support of religion, allow ourselves to drop the cynicism we are tempted to deploy to keep our hearts from breaking, to recognize the vulnerability of the world and, because we are a part of it, allow ourselves to expose that same vulnerability, that we may enter the wild, that we may care for it, us, each other, that we may love, and that we may speak in voices brimming with the urgency of prophecy, that we may speak the things we see. May it be so. Amen.